Welcome to the Student of the Game podcast, where we break down the lives, strategies, and advice of successful individuals who are students of their own game and masters of their own craft. My name is Tim Stone. My co-hosts are Nick Galbraith and Ian Cushing. Let's get ready to learn and grow. I'm Tim Stone with my co-host, Nick Galbraith. Today, we've got a special guest, David Tupin. David, thank you for being here. What's up, guys? Thanks for having me. Awesome. So David is a real estate investor and syndicator out of Austin, Texas. He is 26 years old and we're going to dive right into his story and how he built his career in real estate. So David, thank you for being here and uh, go ahead and tell us tell us everything about your life up until the college age. Yeah, well, I think it's cool. You guys focus on a lot of young people. Um, I started pretty young and I like helping other young people get in into some form of entrepreneurship. So I think like many entrepreneurs, uh, I uh, started young, kind of had the bug. My first business was landscaping, like many people. And so I started a little landscaping business um, where I'm from, outside of Detroit, Michigan. And, um, you know, it's kind of my first venture. I would say, like, looking back, I didn't I didn't go crazy hard on it. I had about 20 accounts, but it kind of taught me how to, you know, go door to door, sell people, communicate with people you know, collecting money, organization of, of having a business and that side of things. Um, so that was pretty cool. And I was always like a hyperactive kid. And uh, so, you know, I think my mom actually really helped a lot. She channeled me towards doing that because she knew I had a ton of energy. And, she, you know, I, I wasn't really a good fit for like traditional uh, type jobs. So um, it worked for me. I got to control my schedule, do it on my own terms. I had some equipment, you know, some big mowers, stuff like that. And and so it was kind of fun and kind of cool to like have that as my first business experience um, started when I was really young, like 13, 14. Um, so I really enjoyed that. I mean, before that, I, you know, I was, uh, I just, I grew up in, uh, um, you know, I would say like upper middle class family um, outside of Detroit. You know, I'm, I'm definitely uh, very blessed and I had uh, good parents, good family. I've got two sisters and I think, um, you know, it, it helped me stay uh, really grounded and gave me the ability to really think and focus on what I wanted to do, to do long term. And so um, ended up going to college. I thought I wanted to be a dentist and my dad's a dentist. And so I went to college uh, to be a dentist first year and studied biology and I hated it. And so I switched over to uh, business pretty quick. Um, was not a fan of school. I don't know about you guys. I know you just said uh, Tim, right? Yeah. Okay, Tim. Yeah, you just said uh, you just dropped out of school there, which is good for you because you're you're pursuing entrepreneurship and business, real estate. Um, I hated school, man. It was it was not for me. I hated sitting in the classroom. I hated being told told what to do all the time. And so, um, you know, I, I my last couple of years of school college when I was studying business, I really don't think I went to class more than forty or fifty percent of the time because I was so busy starting up my business and you know, initially trying out different things and I wanted to do. So I don't know, that's kind of how I got started. And I, I, I started my first serious business, my junior year of college when I was 19, um, which my real estate company I've had for about six years now. So um, real estate's all I do, man. It's my life. It's my world. Absolutely. And, and David, what sparked interest in real estate? I mean, this kind of came out of kind of nowhere or um, someone met up with just networking or family or Kind of what yeah. started. Yeah. Um, so I had tried a couple of different ventures, like middle, early, middle college. 
um tried like you know i was like man i want to start like a software company so i had a couple ideas they're all like kind of bogus ideas but um it was stuff that it was kind of cool to like focus on and learn and what doing that really caused me to network with a lot of really cool people um a few of which helped me uh get me in uh, a couple ins on on a, a few different um, private equity firms uh, investment banks and so i ended up doing uh, a couple internships in investment banking, which is really cool. So trying to start my first like serious business before real estate, you know, some tech stuff that I was working on um, led me to network with some people in the financial world, which led me to some really good internships, which opened my eyes up, um, taught me some really good skills, um, you know, like financial analysis, Excel, all that type of stuff. Uh, and I just met a lot of really cool people. And, and I ended up meeting a couple partners at one of the firms I was at that invested in real estate one of the other, funny enough, one of the other interns I was with, um, this is before podcasts were like big thing and everywhere. Um, one of the other interns was like, hey, do you listen to podcasts? I was like, oh, what's a podcast? Like I normally just listen to music and they're like, oh, you need to check out podcasts. And so, you know, knowing me, I went right to the business section and I found bigger pockets. And that honestly kind of changed my world because that led me to read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And then I was hooked. I read that book and I was like, this is what I'm going to do. Real estate's my thing. So um, I'd say that's kind of like what got me interested in real estate. And I had, um, an, a relative that was a real estate developer and I, I don't really, I didn't really know much of what he did. I knew they owned some big box retail, but, um, you know, just seeing that growing up, like kind of wealth that you can create in real estate was kind of cool. So, um, you know, so all these things, uh, came together and, and led me to just fall in love with real estate. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Rich Dad, Poor Dad seems to come up in almost every episode we do. I think we've had like 15 guests now and probably 10 or 12 of them have mentioned it. So it's funny that it just, it comes up so often. It's been such an influential book in so many people's lives. Uh, While we're on the topic of it, would you go into why it was so life-changing? Yeah, for me, it just made sense. It's like, what else can you invest in where not only... You have cash flow, you control the asset, you can actually control the value in certain ways. You can get creative with it. Um, you know, you, you kind of create your own destiny, right? I, I'm, I'm going out there every day and searching for deals, hunting properties. And like, that is the creation of my income and my wealth is like what I do. My direct actions create my wealth. And then I can build a team and scale it and allow my business to be almost self-managing in a way. Um, and, and it's just, it just makes sense, right? You invest in a property, tenants pay your mortgage, you get cash flow, you get appreciation, the tax benefits, um, you could sell it, take your profits, roll them into 1031 into another asset and, you know, double your money, triple your money, keep and keep it rolling. It just makes sense to me, right? I, I was never a big stock guy. Um, I've invested in a couple of stocks and it's never been like anything crazy for me. So, but real estate is something that was easy for me to comprehend and grasp. You don't need to be a rocket scientist to do it. You just need to figure it out, learn it, work hard, and anyone really uh, can invest in real estate, you know, in different at different levels. So you had a, a pretty early exposure to like private equity and like those that financial industry. So when you went into your first deal, what did it look like? Like how many units was it? Was it a multifamily deal? It was. Yeah, I did. I dabbled in wholesaling for like six months, and then I was like, yeah, I don't like doing this. I did like seven or eight deals, and then. Um, I just wanted to do, you guys ever read the art of the deal? Mm-hmm. Um, he started, yeah, he, his opening, yeah. yeah. His opening line is I like to do deals, 
big deals, right? And so I always felt the same. And I, I read that book. I've read that book probably like five times. And um, I just felt the same way. Single family was not interesting at all to me. I wanted to be doing deals with two commas, uh, you know, at least and um, seven figure multi-million dollar properties. I wanted to be dealing with more money, bigger checks, bigger income potential. Um, and it's just more fun to me. You can get more creative. So I, you know, really didn't like single family. So I went straight into multi multi-family. Awesome. Absolutely. And um, David, I guess just kind of going back to uh, Detroit, um, what kind of, I guess just going back to your mentality and your determination to, you know, just be great and be entrepreneurial and, you know, just um, explore these different avenues of, of, of building wealth. It was it sports or was it um, family members is kind of, uh, I don't know that uh, you've had exposure, which, you know, just chasing your goals and just going after them and, um, you know, setting goals and uh, just bettering, bettering yourself. No, I don't know if it was sports. I played a lot of sports like soccer, wrestling, lacrosse, a couple of different things. And I was never, I was never obsessed with sports to the point where I really cared if I won or lost. Like I wasn't that competitive in sports. Um, I, I guess maybe that's just me, but when it came to business, I felt like, and, and maybe it's just cause I was like a small kid, right? Like I played football in third grade. I was the tiniest kid on the team. Um, when, you know, once I got, uh, more into like, like middle school, high school, like lacrosse and stuff like that, I was still m- normally one of the smaller people on the team. And so, um, I, I just, I don't know, the sports, I, I really do enjoy, I'm, I'm pretty, uh, competitive nowadays in a couple of sports, but like, you know, for me, I think I, I have an obsessive personality when it comes to certain things and business is one of them. I think it's cause it clicked really well for me. Um, I think I was good at it from the start and I felt like, Hey, this is my superpower. Um, you know, this is something I could really excel at and take the moon. And I had always wanted to be extremely wealthy and, you know, very, very few people do that through sports. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. actually even less retain their wealth through sports. So, um, uh, you know, for me, it was like, man, I got into business and I just loved it and you can make money doing it, dude, this is awesome. So I became obsessed and I still, to this day, am absolutely obsessed. Awesome. So how long has it been now since you uh, bought that first deal? Man, that was like March of 2017. No. Yeah. End of 2016, early 2017. Okay. Four or five, five years. Okay. And from what I understand, you do more larger multifamily syndications. Is that all you've got going on now? Or where did the, the business take a shift? And what has it? what are the stages your business has gone through at this point? Like where did it start? What did you go through? What are you doing now? Yeah, I started. So syndication was what I'd done for a long time out of necessity, right? I didn't have any money to start. I didn't get any money from family. Um, so I had to go raise money um, from, from people. I had to build a network, raise money. So I, I bought probably like six, seven, eight, probably 800 apartments over a three and a half, three year span. Um, and through syndication, um, and I'd structured them pretty well. So I had built up a good net worth for myself. I was always, you know, primary GP, um, very few partners. Uh, so I just, I just took on a lot of the workload, I hustled. And so I, I structured deals well to where I was able to create a get a little net worth for myself. And so over the last probably year and a half, two years, I have um, done a lot more of joint ventures as opposed to syndications. So, you know, I'm doing a little bit smaller deals, stuff in the one to $6 million price range. 
um, but being a majority owner of most of the deals now. So I, I buy some deals on my own. I'll do joint ventures with like two or three other people, um, just small groups. You know, hey, I'll find one person to put up a million bucks and I'll put up 200 grand or I'll put up, you know, uh, 250 and they'll put up 500, something like that, right? We're doing smaller deals where I'm putting more of my own money in and um, just retaining larger ownership percentages as opposed to doing, you know, I have my biggest deal is a 230 unit deal where, you know, I own like 10% of it. And so I'm like, ah, you know, I have less control. You can make a lot of money syndicating. I have, but I, you know, I've transitioned more towards more control, more ownership in deals, more, more of my own portfolio. Yeah. I had wondered if that's the direction you went after you, you know, built the business and had the experience and the net worth and the money. So thank you for answering that. Cause I was curious. Sure. Yeah. And David kind of just unpacking, um, uh, your, your journey, I guess, kind of going all the way back to the private equity firm when you and your partner got started, what were some early struggles that you guys had, um, of syndicating apartments? I mean, just, I mean, I guess just take us back to that first deal and uh, just starting off with your partner. I mean, everything, man. I mean, it was, it was uh, a challenge from, you know, finding the deal took a lot of work, networking with brokers, cold calling, looking at a lot of properties, making a lot of offers. Um, I'd say the one part that was always easy was like the underwriting, the analysis. I'm pretty analytical. So that part came easy, but raising money was really difficult. You know, when you don't have a track record, you don't have, you know, I was 21 years old. How am I going to convince people to give me money? I mean, I had to ask a shitload of people, right? And then I got a lot of no's, tons of no's. Um, and so I'd say raising money was the toughest. And then, you know, I always had to bring on a partner to qualify for the loan and stuff like that. So I would bring on people that could sign on the debt and then I'd go raise the money. Um, sometimes they raise some money as well. Um, so yeah, the whole thing was just a challenge and learning experience. But to me, it was all just a part of the process. It's like, okay, I don't, I don't know what type of financing is the best type of financing. So I'm going to ask around to some people and I'll try out a Freddie Mac loan. Like how did this go? And then, you know, you, you, you figure out that, Hey, it was, it was, just by luck that I happened to do a step down prepayment penalty instead of yield maintenance. Because when I sold the deal two years later, my prepayment penalty was only like 200 grand as opposed to 700,000. And so I lucked out. So now, you know, I learned that. And then, hey, don't try and hard sell investors because they're not going to want to put their money with you. You know, you got to present it in a different way. Um, so I started getting like a 5%, uh, you know, invest rate with people I talked to up to getting 30, 40%. Right. And now even more. So, you know, you just kind of learn by trial and experience. And I think if I were to give some advice, the most powerful thing is I always went into every situation with confidence, whether I, I had all the answers or not. I had at least a base knowledge to where I can go into the room with anybody, whether they were a new broker just getting started or somebody that's been in the business for 30 years. I could talk the talk. Um, and I always was confident, like, hey, I can close on the deal. It doesn't matter if I have the money lined up or not. I can figure it out. They don't have to know that, right? I've got all the money ready, man. The money's there. I'm just, I'm ready to buy the deal. Like, here's my offer. Let's uh, line me up with a seller. And, you know, they don't need to know all the struggles are going on the back end, but I had the confidence going in. So I think that's one thing. And then um, the other thing is you got to be fearless when it comes to just the, the trials that you're going to go through starting a business and figuring something out when you're new to it. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to mess up. But if you are too scared to make a decision, you're never going to get past that next level, that next line. You have to just make a, make a call, make a decision, and, um, and, and then figure it out, right? And you learn, and 
and you mess up and you you do good and sometimes and then other times things don't go so well but if you work hard you always figure it out for sure so on on the topic of mistakes what was the the biggest mistake slash lesson that you had to go through biggest mistake like to date or early on sure. yeah to date and to date the biggest mistakes i wholesaled the deal last year that i should have bought and instead of making four million dollars we made about a million dollars from a wholesale of a large apartment complex and thinking back should have bought it instead yeah. of flipping it um but that was a case of the wrong wrong people wrong partners uh wrong decision and uh that's a lesson learned um other than that, I, I don't know i haven't had a deal that's lost money um i've always been pretty precise and conservative um and i just take my time right i've gone through two periods in the last five years i've gone through two periods of 12 months where i didn't buy a single property and but the whole time I was working, I was hustling, hunting for deals, but I just couldn't find one. And so just being patient, I think, is is key. But I don't regret being patient. Probably should have bought every deal I looked at, but it's hindsight. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And uh going back to uh just being certain um about you know um sitting in the room with new brokerages, going back to what you were saying and just about being certain in your decisions. Um, I think one key thing I just wanted to kind of highlight there is the ability to be resourcefulness and to say, I'm going to make this decision and I'll, and I'll figure out everything because I'm just resourcefulness. And if I don't have the resources, I'll go find them. Um, and I think that was a very powerful one. And kind of going back to the prepayment penalty in the, the yield. Yield uh, maintenance. Yeah, yield maintenance. Could you kind of explain those two points there? Because, I mean, most of our listeners are students. Um, and if you could just kind of um, go over those, that'd be awesome. Yeah, sure. So, when you go and you finance a property, and this is the case for pretty much any commercial financing, um, banks want to, you know, everything banks do is really calculated. Like, hey, here's the rate that we're borrowing from the U.S. Treasury. Here's our spread, right? We're going to mark it up a percent and a half or percent or whatever, two percent, however many base points they mark up there. And that, that they're making that interest rate spread. Well, they're committing to give you a loan right? Maybe it's amortized over 30 years, but they're giving you a loan for a five, seven, three, five, seven, 10 year term, at which point you have to pay them back. Now they want to secure their interest, right? They're making an investment in you by saying, Hey, here's $2 million. This is, it's at four and a half percent interest. Uh, and you have to, um, pay the balance in 10 years. It's a 10 year term. Well, if you pay it off early, they have oftentimes prepayment penalties. They don't always, but oftentimes they have a prepayment penalty, right? You have to pay, 1% of the loan amount, 2% of the loan amount, 3% of the balance remaining, right? When it's paid off. Or I have a couple loans right now where it's like 15 months minimum interest. If you pay us off in 12 months, you got to at least pay, you got to still pay us the next three months or the next six months or the next nine months because we want to secure part of our investment for you cutting it off short and then mm -hmm. selling the property. Um, and so in, uh, in, in agency lending, um, and, and other institutions, but agency like Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae, big multifamily lenders, uh, they have something called yield maintenance, which is uh, simply a calculation, um, which is it's hard to explain, but I, I think the gist of it would be uh, it, it takes into account the interest rate at the time of your loan and then the current interest rate at the day you pay it off. And if interest rates have shifted in a certain direction, say they lent you money at like 
5%, and now interest rates are down to like 3%. Well, they're making more money on your loan right now. Once you sell it, now they're going to have to go lend it at 3%, right? So they're going to be making less. So there, there's a calculation there to be had where a lot of people that borrowed money in the 4 5 6% range three, five, six, seven years ago that are now paying off loans have significant prepayment penalties with yield maintenance, right? It's something that's calculated out. And so you could have a $5 million loan and hold the loan for three years and have a $2 million prepayment penalty. Well, that means you'd have to sell it for, you know, 5 million plus the equity you want, plus that prepayment penalty for you to make profit. And for a lot of buyers, that'll never make sense. So there's two things you could do. One is the buyer can assume the loan. So the loan stays in place. Mm-hmm. Yield maintenance uh, prepayment penalty doesn't have to be paid because the loan is still being maintained by the new buyer. Um, however, they're going to have to pay a huge spread of equity. A lot of times they're going to get a lower loan to value. And oftentimes as well, they're going to be a higher interest rate because it was their higher rates than they are today. And so um, the other option is you can go with a step down prepayment penalty. A lot of times you can elect to choose which one. And a step down prepayment penalty will say, let's say for something like, It'll be a four, four, three, three, two, two, one, 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 one. And that means the first two years, it's 4% of the loan amount. The second, they're the th- year three and four, it's 3%. The next couple of years is two to do, and you get the point, so on and so forth. And so it's a preset defined percentage. Um, and so I got lucky. I chose, I was like, God, oh, step down just in case we sell it. Like our penalty will be a lot lower. I don't really understand yield maintenance, but this sounds right. And <laughs> The trade-off is normally with a step-down, you pay a higher interest rate on the loan. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Long story short, that's kind of the difference between the two. And um, I think a step-down is oftentimes a better uh, option if you're not going to hold the property for a really long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for explaining that, David. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> so um, how many, like... How many deals are you looking at, say, in a week to uh, to continue your business? Like, what's your pipeline look like um, to reach the goals you're going towards? Um, I'm not looking at as many deals as I was. From, for example, like in 2019, I looked at like 450 deals or something stupid. It was crazy. <laughs> Whole team, we were underwriting like 20 deals. I mean, it's crazy. Um, nowadays, I'm looking at like couple deals a week. I mean, people send me a lot of deals nowadays. It's a little bit more passive, um, but I'm also focusing a lot more on my software company now. So I'm doing just more of my own personal deals, 1031s, um, you know, just kind of buying and selling deals as they come up. Like if I could do three to five really good deals a year, um, I'm, o- I'm okay with that. That's kind of like my goal. Three to five, like really solid, you know, high equity spread deals each year. So I'm not looking at a ton every week, a couple deals a week, but I think I've refined it down a lot to where I don't get a lot of junk sent my way anymore. Yeah. Awesome. So let's talk about the software company. So real estate labs is your software company and uh, just go ahead and tell the people what you got going on with there. Yeah. It's a multifamily acquisitions platform. So anyone who buys apartments, invests in apartments, um, actively is looking at deals, you need to underwrite the property, right? You need to run the numbers to see what makes sense. And so I built a spreadsheet a couple of years ago. Um, people started buying it from me. And then people, a lot of people started buying it from me. And um, so I noticed there was a demand. You know, there's a couple other people out there in the market that sell spreadsheets and stuff like that. And I wanted to create a more sophisticated product to help people manage their pipeline, analyze deals, send offers, um, get financing, all that kind of stuff. 
And so created Real Estate Lab um, and Real Estate Lab is launching end of 2021 to the public. Right now it is in beta with our uh, community and uh, it's pretty cool. You can manage all your deals kind of on a map, um, a pipeline. You could, you know, categorize them, which deals are active, purchased, under contract, archive deals. Um, and you can underwrite them right online on the platform. Uh, you could send offers, write up offers. You can upload rent rolls and T12s. It will read them. As long as they're in Excel, it will read a rent roll, pull out the unit mix, put it in the analyzer for you. That's awesome. Yeah. It'll read a T12, pull out the key data, put it in the analyzer for you. Eventually, I wanted to make it so it's just a couple clicks and we'll be able to take market data, input, auto input, operating expenses, rental data, all that kind of stuff, current financing terms, and underwrite deals uh, in a more automated way. Awesome. So are you the, the coding brain behind everything, or did you have to hire people to put together the software company? Absolutely not. No, that's there's people far smarter than I are doing yeah. the coding. Um, I have a team of about six people out in San Diego that are uh, doing the coding. And then I've got, you know, three or four other employees uh, in-house kind of marketing team, sales team that help distribute um, and, and get it out there. Awesome. So that's something I've been curious about for a long time. And I think a lot of other people probably also the same thing. Like if you have an idea for a software company, what does it look like? What do you do? Do you have to learn to code? How do you hire people? Like what did that process look like once you had the idea and you had a clear picture? Where did you, what were the first steps of making the software company? Yeah, dude, it, it was a, it was a pain. I mean, it's been years in the making finally to get to a working product because I, I knew nothing about software. I spent $60,000 with a company um, about two and a half years ago and they created just a product that didn't even work. It didn't look pretty. Um, and, and I mean, I, I figured out really what it was, was I didn't, I didn't properly hire, I didn't hire the right team, first of all, but also I underestimated how much it would actually cost. So at this point, we've spent about more than a half million dollars building out just our first uh, beta product, kind of our MVP, minimum viable product. And I, I, you know, after I basically flushed that 60 grand down the toilet, I, uh, I went to the drawing board and really networked in the industry, interviewed tons of companies, and then found the one that was the, the right fit for me and had the experience to actually get it done. And so it was, it's been a work in progress it's been about two and a half years now. And, and we're finally getting to uh, getting our product to the market in the next couple months. Awesome. Yeah. Congratulations. That's, that's awesome. And all the way back to uh, like you previously mentioned when you were in college, you kind of had the idea of starting a software company, um, yeah. kind of bringing those dreams to uh, fruition, I guess the proper term is. And well, bringing it to life. <laughs> that's awesome um and uh kind of bouncing back from software to your real estate business can you kind of tell us how that's modeled um and the team that you have in place and just um what that kind of um day-to-day -day looks like yeah I, a lot of my deals are um you know I, I might have a partner on it that is like an asset manager i, I yeah. tend to not do a lot of asset management i have third-party property management um, and so, you know, I have, I have a couple of smaller properties, like 20, 30, 50 units that I do the asset management on myself. Um, those are stuff that I own. And then I have like other larger properties, like I have 136 unit we're selling right now that's up in Fort Worth, uh, 108 units in Atlanta. And, you know, on those ones I have, a, I have partners on that, that 
you know, do more of the asset management side of things. And then I have an underwriter in house, um, like an acquisitions type of, uh, acquisitions director, I'd say. Um, and then a lot of the rest I do myself. I mean, I'm pretty lean. Um, but I, I like to run a lot of the, uh, you know, I'll, I'll negotiate up front the deal. I'll get the deal locked up. That's the part I like doing. And then I like taking it from there to getting it closed. Mm-hmm. Um, the financing, uh, managing the transaction process, um, you know, raising capital or finding the right strategic partners for the deal. Uh, and then once it's closed, I'll normally hand it off to an asset manager. Um, I'm, I'm hiring an in-house asset manager in the next uh, probably 12 months here. Um, and then that, that'll all be kind of in-house. So that's team's, team's small right now, two, three people. Absolutely. I love it. And um, David, what kind of, what, what is your end goal um, for your life? And just kind of seeing the businesses that you're starting now and um, what, what is your end goal? I'd like to hit a billion. I think at some point in the next, in the next 20 years, my 20 year goals, I want to hit a billion. And so um, I think what it's going to take is just uh, real consistent. Um, like I said, couple small, a couple, couple strong deals a year, three to five really strong deals a year for the next couple of years, uh, build up the software company um, to the point where that's, um, you know, got a really self-sustained team. It's, it's self-managing, it's growing. Um, and I can kind of be at the forefront pushing that forward. Uh, and then what I'd like to do is spin, spin capital off from the software uh, that that produces and just reinvest, reinvest, reinvest. And then, um, you know, I think as, as I grow over the next five years, I'd like to be in a position where I'm just buying my own deals. I'd like to buy, you know, again, I'd like to get in a position where I buy a thousand units a year on my own with no other partners, no other investors. And so I think that's something that I could, I could really start doing within the next 10 years. Um, you know, I think within the next three to four years, I could, you know, hundred to 200 units a year, a couple strategic investments on my own with no partners. Um, that would be the end goal and, and, and just, just build a business that, you know, I can go away for a month, to another country and I come back and it's, and it's bigger, right. It's self, self-managing business. Um, but I, I love real estate. I'm a deal junkie. So I'll, regardless of, if, you know, where I'm at in 10, 20 years, I'll be, I'll be doing deals till the day I die. It's in my blood. Absolutely. And um, I mean, just looking at your Instagram, I know you love flying and, um, and I guess, could you talk about your, uh, your love for flying a little bit and just kind of um, tell us about that journey too? Yeah, I, I did. Um, you know, they do those like introductory flights and yeah. I have a buddy who's got a, uh, kind of like a midsize jet and we fly around a lot and look at deals and, he uh, kind of inspired me. Uh, just the freedom that I saw that he has being able to travel around and do that and look at deals and go where he wants, whenever he wants. Like, you don't have to go through commercial security airport. I'm like, man, this is, this is amazing. Right. But you gotta have a lot of money to fly a jet at least. Right. Mm-hmm. But, but it's not very hard and the buried entry is not very high for flying smaller planes. And mm-hmm. so um, I'm in the process of getting my pilot's license. I mean, Dude, it's just such a freeing feeling being able to like I could leave my house right now, be at the airport in 20 minutes. I'm building a hangar right now, actually there, and uh, I could be at the airport in 20 minutes. I get my plane. You don't have to go through security, and I could literally just go wherever I want right now. And I don't have to tell anybody. You don't have to schedule it unless it's really bad weather out or cloudy, right? Mm-hmm. And you can just get in, and go wherever you want. And I like that freedom, um, you know. And and flying is just a blast. It's fun. <laughs> that's awesome have you have you ever been skydiving or anything like that or just flying no skydiving not yet i will but not yet 
That's awesome. So well, what stage are, um, in your license are you? Your private license? Because um, my, my buddy's been going through the course at Murfreesboro here, nice. and I want to jump in the plane with him. But uh, I guess what stage are you at right now? Yeah, you got to do it. Um, it I'm, I'm almost done with my private license. Next couple months, I'll be done. Yeah. Awesome. Almost there. <laughs> um, um, I guess just kind of going into uh, um, what, what if, I guess – what advice would you recommend to give back to a student, maybe even starting college, you know, a young entrepreneur cutting grass? Um, I guess what what advice would you give them to, you know, start implementing in, in their life? Which, which you know today, what would you tell someone um, in your shoes when you started thinking about entrepreneurial ventures? Yeah, you've got to put a lot of time into just exploring the options because there's so many ways to make money right? Mm -hmm. Real estate is not the best way for everyone. I mean, I, I'm a big fan if you've got to do what you love, maybe not in the short term, but in the long term, if you want to build something pretty incredible, you have to do something that you're passionate about and willing to put endless amount of hours in to make it happen because that is what it takes is a significant amount of hard work. Um, and so you've got to explore, like, like network with people, try things. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Um, you know, go out and, and just explore and experiment with different things. Try something. If it doesn't work, Try it a different way or try something else. Um, and, and then just just never give up on it because um, the minute you get, I mean, I just I just know there were so many times and went out, you know, probably the first year, year and a half when I was getting started before I had created some momentum in apartments where I could have just said like, wow, I had like seven deals in a row fall apart over the course of three months. Man, nothing's working. Like, but then the next week you, you, you hit it and you, you strike gold, right? And there, there's just, there's just something to be said for um, the people that are persistent and willing to continue to put in the hard work and you're tenacious and you're obsessed and you will literally do whatever it takes, anything to make it happen. And you have to do that to be a successful entrepreneur. Sure. You can go and buy, you know, a single family rental with your W2 income over the next couple of years and you could build a nice, you know, portfolio over a long term. But like, if you want to actually become extremely wealthy, first of all, at a young age, you want to be a multimillionaire in your early twenties. It's possible. Uh, but you have to put in a significant amount of hard work and you cannot give up, can't stop. And you have to kick a lot of people out of your life. Uh, maybe not completely, but you have mm -hmm. to kick a lot of people out of your life that don't that enable you and don't support you and don't allow you to make that happen. Like the people that are around you that you surround yourself with, it's extremely important. Tim just dropped out of college. You know, I love all my college friends. We had a blast, so much fun over the first couple of years, but like I, I left all that after, you know, um, my, my junior year, I really like, I moved back home. I got away from it because that group of people, you know, you want to go party and drinking and this and that. Like I didn't do that for like three years. I like didn't go to a single bar or anything. I was living back at my parents' house. I lived in some of my apartments. I switched my entire friend group and I, I, I did whatever it took. Right. It, I love you guys, but I'm not going to see you for a while. Cause I got shit I got to do. Mm. I was obsessed. So Hey, get obsessed, make the right decisions, work your ass off, and there's no way uh, you won't be successful. Absolutely. Um, and David, what's a, a book that you've gifted the most recently? Recently? Um, I read this cool book for software startups called Zero to One. I like that book a lot. <laughs> uh, oh, what's that negotiation book? I've read it so many times, I can't remember. It's by the... What's, yeah, never split the difference. That's a great book. Um, 
man. I'm like, I feel like I'm like Gary V though nowadays. I don't, I don't read a lot of books at all. I really don't like reading that much, but I, I just, I just kind of work. I'm like a practitioner. Um, yeah. I haven't read a book in a minute, but um, yeah, I like, I never split the difference. I'm a, I'm a big negotiation nerd. I love negotiating with people. So never split the difference is a good one. Awesome. Absolutely. I'm, I'm just kind of diving into that negotiation. What, um, I guess things do you really focus on going and negotiating? Um, with, you know, whether it be an apartment owner, um, whether it be, um, um, a, a, a J, you know, JV partnership going in with another partner, I guess just the key things to focus on, um, and not, I guess not change it into a straight up battle, but I mean, just, uh, transparently work through that. Sure. I think, I think knowledge and leverage are the two biggest things. What, uh, mm -hmm. knowledge gives you leverage. So, um, what, what do you know going into the negotiation? What do you not know? What do you need to figure out, right? And what type of questions do you need to ask to get you there? And then there, are, you know, obviously a lot of like key phrases, ways to word things, certain things that can that can help you get through certain scenarios. But I think the biggest thing is what questions can you ask to get a certain person to come to the right conclusion. A lot of times it's patience, right? Whether you're going through splitting up a partnership or whether I'm trying to bring a deal to the table and have somebody try and partner with me. Mm -hmm. um, what knowledge do you have going in? What do you not have? What are what what black swan uh, is a term in, in that book? What do you need to figure out that's the unknown variable that will give you kind of the key um, to getting what you want out of negotiation? Um, and so, you know, I think I think it's it's something that you can read a lot of books about, but until you do it on a daily basis, it's tough. Um, I think we're negotiating in almost everything, right? Relationships, people, friendships, mm -hmm. in school. I mean, I negotiated my ass off with my teachers in school that, that passed me, you know, so I didn't fail. Um, but there, there's just, I think there's, uh, there is definitely like a practice element to it. You just have to, I, I mean, I was garbage at negotiating when I first started business. I was really garbage at it, but I learned and I listened and I watched mentors and other people on the phone and I saw how people negotiated with me and then I would try certain things out and then you just figure it out and you're like, oh shit, that works. Wow, it worked again. It worked again. It worked again. Oh, it didn't work that time. What do I have to, what do I have to do this time? Maybe I need to wait a little bit longer. Maybe I need to implement a little bit more patience. Maybe I need to come at it from a different angle. Um, and then over time, like I wouldn't call myself a master negotiator by any means, but over time you start realizing like, wow, I'm really in control of everything. And, um, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool to like be, work your way towards that point. What's the, what's the coolest thing, like the coolest thing you negotiated and like felt good about, like you, you knock someone down a couple million dollars or, or just to get a better spot in a deal. Like what's your best story? Yeah, I, I negotiated an 11 property portfolio, um, start to finish from a mom and pop owner. Uh, we got, got it under contract for like 16 and a half million. It was probably worth like 18 million as is and COVID hit. And I waited and I waited and I waited. I spent three weeks telling them, you know, the banks are switching up their terms on us and investors are backing out this and that. They really wanted to get the portfolio closed. It was a hard, hard deal for them to close. And I finally, like after kind of like working it for, uh, for weeks and weeks and weeks, I waited till it was kind of like the low, it felt like the lowest point of COVID. It was like May of last year and everything was just, you know, everything was collapsed and nobody was working and everybody was home and everybody's wearing masks and scared and this and that. And I, 
I I don't want to say struck at the right moment, but like it was the right time. Like in you know, in hindsight, it was the perfect moment at the time. I didn't know it was the perfect moment. I knew it was a good time to do it. And so I, we retraded the deal about almost $2 million um, and pretty much got it half off compared to today. So um, that was a really sweet deal. Awesome. <laughs> but it took, you know, if I would have gone in right from the start and asked for that retrade, it wouldn't work. It took, it took weeks and waiting and waiting and patience and patience and patience and then hitting it at the right time. Absolutely. And I think just being, yeah, being patient and just the leadership that, you know, it took to, to go through that journey and work with the sellers and work with the banks and work with your partners to get that thing done. I mean, that's extraordinary. Yeah. I'm still friends with the seller. He actually just called me this morning. It's been over a year since we closed. He, he called me, uh, he called me this morning. We're still good buddies. So, um, you know, that's how you do it. You could, you can negotiate and not have to be like this with people where you're up against them and negotiate from a, from a vantage point of working with them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And um, a book that I, I just recently read, David, was um, The Multifamily Investors Who Dominate by Bo Berry. Um, I believe he's a broker out of Northern Florida. Um, I'm, it's a great book and absolutely loved it and just talked about how important of the empathy going into negotiations and the difference between elite and average investor. Um, this is a very extraordinary book. And you named the key uh, things I got out of the book of just really working and building rapport and just, you know, um, just really working to find a solution more as being cut and dry. Um, yeah, you you can you can be a shark in ways, but if you always act like a shark, people are gonna know you're a dick and they're not gonna want to work with you. Right. You gotta be a good person. I mean, first of all, you've got to always do the right thing. I don't I don't think it, there's ever any excuse to act unethical in business. Mm-hmm. Uh, you gotta do the right thing, but you definitely, like you said, I agree. Absolutely. Awesome, David. Well, we really appreciate your time today. Is there anything um, else that you would want to leave with leave with our listeners today before we head out here? Follow me on Instagram at Real Estate Jedi. Would love to connect, and I, I always love helping other young people get into business. So, reach out, please. Awesome. awesome. Thank you. Well, thanks again, David, and uh, have a good rest of your day. And I appreciate your time. Dope. We'll see you guys soon. Peace. Awesome. We'll end it there. So. Remind me how many 